Story two of the Hotel d'Angleterre and Other Stories by Lenoy Falconer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story two The Violin Obligato though there was no one at home at the old grange inhabitants of the newer houses round leicester driving as they were permitted to do through its thickly wooded park heard sounds of music issuing from the open windows it was sylvia clanover practising her violin lady clanover had more than one orphan granddaughter to introduce to society her plan was to take them all in turn sylvia's though she was past eighteen had not yet come her governess was gone but she was still in the schoolroom and whilst her grandmother chaperoned an elder cousin through a london season passed the summer in solitude mrs vane the dean's wife bethought herself of this lonely musician when the amateur concert in aid of the new reading-room was at hand and the beautiful jessica graham protested that she could not sing her duet with mr paul seymour to no more inspiring accompaniment than mrs graham's on the piano i wish we could have the violin obligato for mamma always plays straight on one two three as if she were playing to a metronome it would be such a help to have something a little more sympathetic then mrs vane went up to the grange and used her influence as an old friend of the clanovers to bring sylvia and her violin to a rehearsal of the duet which was to take place in mrs graham's drawing-room sylvia clanover was a fine-skinned brown-eyed little creature with a childlike simplicity of manner the violin part she had studied already she now asked to look at the song and attentively considered both music and words the latter ran something like this where summer clouds are sailing above a sunlit sea a voice is heard bewailing the winter that shall be how sad this ceaseless sigh for beauty born to die and that high bliss of noon which night enshrouds too soon and the refrain went o oh, sweet our faith shall hold one fort untaken in this eternal triumph of decay for we shall breast the storm of time unshaken and love to-morrow as we love to-day the sentiment of course is a little high-flown said mrs vane apologetically and was then somewhat perplexed by the evident astonishment in sylvia's eyes which indeed expressed much the same amazement as mrs vane herself might have felt if some one in her presence had spoken of the apostles creed as high-flown would they sing it now suggested sylvia timidly she was a little shy of these strangers and a good deal dazzled by the colour and glitter of a room furnished and bedizened according to the latest fashion but all trace of embarrassment vanished as she tuned her violin and then taking her place by the violin stand just opposite the singers and the wide open door window behind them stood ready to play but not yet playing listening and looking jessica glancing upward from the sheet before her saw the earnest eyes dilate and darken and gleam as if reflecting some newly kindled flame it was a wonderful moment in sylvia's experience which had hitherto been remarkably prosaic in poems and paintings but never in real life had she seen anything like the picture now before her 
Paul Seymour, pale, dark-eyed, and slender, might have posed for Romeo himself, while Jessica, to whom some Spanish ancestors had bequeathed her almond-hued complexion and wonderful dark eyes, with such a figure as ripens usually only under a tropical sun, she might have been the heroine of any tale of passion or romance, till she spoke, and her lips curved almost involuntarily into a smile, half sweet, half playful, which was more winsome than her beauty and this most picturesque pair stood side by side, singing from the same page the eulogy of constant love against a background which the summer had prepared for them, of flaming scarlet flowers, dewy green foliage, and cloudless June sky. No wonder that Sylvia surpassed herself and surprised her hearers by her playing, which seemed at once to throw an artistic grace over what had been hitherto a rather commonplace performance. It was as if she had discovered in the music, and now disclosed to others, an alternate pathos and triumph, which nobody had suspected. The singers, both of sensitive temperaments, answered quickly to her touch they sang as they had never sung before till at the close where jessica's ringing soprano and paul's weak but sympathetic tenor rang forth together in the lines for we shall breast the storm of time unshaken and love to-morrow as we love to-day with the voice of the violin soaring and quivering above them the effect was such that mrs vane as she afterward explained felt a cold shiver run down her back my dear sylvia she then exclaimed that is exquisite and jessica was quite right the addition of the violin is the very greatest improvement is it not dear mrs graham yes said the plump matron at the piano looking kindly round upon the performers all slightly flushed with the consciousness of success it is always a good plan to have more than one instrument to accompany amateurs as it all helps to hide when they sing out of tune the duet was declared to be the gem of the concert colonel graham who there being no race meeting that week happened to be at home was among the audience and highly delighted at his daughter's triumph he heartily acknowledged sylvia's contribution thereto when the concert was over and in the warmth of his gratitude insisting that she should go home in his carriage instead of bringing out the dean's averring with more courtesy than accuracy that the grange lay very little out of their own way yes do come urged jessica with a look and a touch that made sylvia flush all over with delight i want to know you better yes said colonel graham presently as they drove along through the darkness there was nothing to compare with that duet in the whole programme miss clanover your playing is superb and as to you my darling though perhaps i ought not to say so i never heard even a professional sing better the only pity is that you had no one but young seymour to sing with if you had had a real tenor mr seymour's is a real tenor papa rubbish it's no more a tenor than your own excuse me papa it is and everybody considers it so not anybody who knows anything about music yes papa the very best judges of music in the place there aren't any do you mean to say mrs vane and mr parsons are not good judges of music 
not if they say young seymour's voice is a tenor i am afraid you are not much of a judge yourself papa how dare you speak to me like that i who before you were born was singing myself with some of the first musicians in europe on they went the colonel's voice getting louder and louder and jessica in order to be heard compelled to shout also till sylvia in whose household nobody ever spoke above a nice drawing-room pitch trembled with agitation mrs graham beside whom she sat took no part in the discussion but when it was at its height with great difficulty secured a hearing what is it cried her husband turning fiercely upon her is the west road the right way to the grange of course it isn't because short has just turned down that way upon which the colonel threw himself half out of the window and in forcible language discharged upon the coachman the remainder of his wrath for the musical contest was not afterward resumed i will come over and see you to-morrow if i may were jessica's parting words and she came driving two fiery chestnuts before her and looking so it seemed to sylvia like a daughter of the gods to whom apollo might have confided his chariot as all the reception-rooms were dismantled it was to her own especial sitting-room the old schoolroom that sylvia led her new friend it seemed sadly bare and dull to jessica who felt she could not have lived two days in a place so unadorned and even the big bow-window looked out upon greensward and trees with neither flower-bed nor border of books there were plenty and music in heaps about the cottage piano you play the piano too let me sing something to your playing said jessica hunting for a song that she knew i feel as if i could sing twice as well when you accompany me please put yourself where i can see you said sylvia as she took her place at the piano and her look and voice stirred even jessica fed to satiety with admiration you dear little thing she cried at the end do you know you have quite won my heart i who as a rule never can get on with girls let us be great friends she came toward the piano as she spoke and smiling offered her hand but instead of taking it sylvia sat looking at her with grave and startled eyes why exclaimed jessica more amazed than piqued don't you like me then like you repeated sylvia with an almost indescribable accent but a friend a real friend is such a great thing and i am not affectionate not affectionate no so i should think no indeed i am not affectionate i do not care very much for many people in all my life i have only had one real friend would you like to see his portrait his too jessica was interested and was willingly conducted across the wide hall up the broad stone staircase and along a corridor floored with slippery oak to sylvia's bedroom it was just over the schoolroom and even more scantily furnished with a huge four-poster bed in the centre draped with quaintly embroidered but faded tapestry near this over a little table on which lay well-worn copies of the bible and shakespeare 
there hung with a cup of flowers beneath it and a trail of ivy round it as if it had been some sacred image a photograph which had already turned dim and yellow the portrait of a man neither young nor handsome oh who is this asked jessica disappointed it is uncle max answered sylvia in a hushed voice oh your uncle a relation for your friend how strange is that strange i had neither father nor mother i mean they died when i was quite a baby and when i came here uncle max was very kind to me as i grew older he had me a great deal with him and called me his little friend once when i was ill uncle max nursed me they thought i would die but i lived and uncle max died two years afterward when was that asked jessica speaking very softly in response to the look upon sylvia's face it was ten years ago ten years why you can hardly remember him can you remember him i am not sure when i do not see this picture for some time i can't quite remember his face but himself it's just the same as if he had not died i know he is living somewhere sometimes i feel him close to me here ah cried jessica starting with eerie horror but sylvia she added coaxingly drawing the girl toward the open window to which the outer world lifted up its freshness and fragrance do not think of these sad things you are going to be my friend are you not they stood hand in hand silently confronting each other for a little time jessica almost magnetized by the steady gaze of the deep dark eyes into which she looked then sylvia drew a long breath and putting her arms round jessica's beautiful pliant form said more solemnly than caressingly yes i will be your friend why this is as bad as a marriage laughed jessica very glad to shake off with a jest the strange impression by which her susceptible nature was overpowered next day as agreed sylvia returned the visit fancy said jessica complacently our concert has paid better than any ever given here they have made exactly seven pounds pure profit you know seven pounds said mrs graham looking up from some drab-coloured socks she was knitting and it cost a great deal of trouble you've all been working for weeks and now mrs morton and miss peake are laid up with violent colds from coming out into the night air after singing and the vernons and the hardings are not on speaking terms because of that dispute about the first part in the concerted piece how much better it would have been if each of the performers let me see yes there were just fifteen of them had each given ten shillings mamma has such a horribly matter-of-fact way of looking at things complained jessica to sylvia later on as they were sitting in the pink and white nest half boudoir half dressing-room which jessica called her own though papa is so hot-tempered and so obstinate poor old darling when he takes an idea into his head i get on better with him than mamma for though she is never cross she is so unsympathetic then the doorbell rang ah visitors visitors cried jessica 
rising with a pretty gesture of impatience. The house, indeed, was daily beset with them, young men and maidens, especially young men, some from the close, more from the garrison, who came to play lawn-tennis and drink afternoon tea, and hover, moth-like, about Jessica. Sylvia, though a little dazed by the crowd and its wild spirits, and instinctively retreating from it to Mrs. Graham's side and shelter, could not but approve of the homage to Jessica. Paul Seymour, who was present, recognized Sylvia, and won her heart by his compliment delivered with evident feeling. "'You play well indeed. You are worthy to accompany Miss Graham.' Then he moved away to the lawn, not to play tennis, but to watch Jessica acquitting herself in the game with equal dexterity and grace. Mrs. Graham, looking after him thoughtfully, said, "'It seems a pity he should have to go to Egypt.' "'Must he go?' "'Well, his cousin, who is a governor or something there, has promised him some place there, and, of course, it would be foolish to refuse it as he has no money of his own, and it is so difficult to find work for young men now. But I should think a hot climate would not be good for his liver, which must be delicate. He always looks so melancholy. Poor young man, he is quite harmless. Colonel Graham is prejudiced against him because he writes poetry, but I can't see that it is any worse than drinking or gambling or the other silly things young men will do, and I dare say he will grow out of it. A few days after this, Sylvia came to lunch and practice with Jessica. She found no one in the drawing-room, so she strolled through the window door into the garden, in whose glowing colors her eyes delighted. She went past the long bed, where the tropiolums flamed in a circlet of bright blue lobelia down a long gravel path, bordered by rose-trees, to where, beyond the tennis-lawn, close-growing hollies threw a welcome shade. And here, as the way took a sharp turn, she suddenly came upon Paul and Jessica, he clasping both her hands in his, and stooping forward to read her face, which she had half turned from him. But even as Sylvia halted, transfixed by surprise, Jessica moved and lifted her eyes to Paul with one of those looks which, like fine music, put the eloquence of mere words to shame, and, as he caught her to him with a murmur of inarticulate delight, Sylvia, conscience-stricken at having seen so much, returned hastily to the house. There, in the drawing-room, she sat with her heart bounding and her brain in a whirl, while Mrs. Graham explained to her the difficulty of having things properly served in a house where people were so unpunctual at meal-times. The practicing after lunch did not go very well. Jessica was unmistakably inattentive, and at last, tossing the music she held impatiently from her, she said, "'Sylvia, I have something to tell you.' "'I think I know what it is. Oh, Jessica, how—' Then Sylvia's voice failed, and she fell upon her friend's neck and kissed her passionately. After that Paul came in, and before the stream of visitors began to follow, they sang the duet. 
Once more Sylvia saw their faces in the same brilliant setting of sunlight and flowers. They looked into each other's eyes when they sang the words, For we shall breast the storm of time unshaken, and love to-morrow as we love to-day. And between the heartbeats of their own delight the violin seemed to throb with a sympathy of which the passion was greater than their own. Sylvia could not sleep till late that night, but sat at her open window, gazing into the darkness. Above the shadowy masses of the great trees a few stars sparkled. The air was warm, windless, heavy with scent from the lime-blossoms. The unspeakable beauty of the summer night had a new meaning, now that it appeared to her as the frame to a joy so solemn and so lovely. I suppose Jessica has told you about this foolish business with young Mr. Seymour, was Mrs. Graham's opening comment next day. I think it is quite the silliest freak Jessica has ever had, and one which the Colonel, who is so indulgent to her in most things, will not put up with for a moment. Will he object to their engagement? Of course he will, my dear. An engagement is always a most unpleasant and inconvenient thing in a house. Still, if it is to end in a marriage, one feels bound to put up with it, as young people must, of course, be settled in life. But an engagement which never can come to anything is really too much. But why should not Jessica marry Mr. Seymour? How could she, my dear? Mr. Seymour has not a penny, and Jessica will not have enough to pay her own expenses. Jessica must marry a rich man. She has such extravagant tastes, and always has had everything she wanted. They little know me, cried Jessica, when this speech was, at her own request, repeated to her. There is no one who cares less for money than I do. She stood dressed for the Lord Lieutenant's garden party in a wonderful Parisian gown, all of snow-white lace and ribbons, and swung impatiently backward and forward as she spoke a long glove delicately perfumed. "'What is the good of expensive things?' she went on, gazing contemptuously round the drawing-room she had herself tricked out so prettily. "'They do not make one really happy.' love and sympathy dear sylvia are the only things worth living for sylvia said amen from her heart and thought she had never seen jessica so beautiful as with that look of noble disdain upon her face four or five days passed and sylvia receiving no message from jessica hesitated to visit the grahams again lest she should obtrude upon the lovers but she was happier than she had ever been in her loneliness, for now, besides her books and her music, she had a living joy over which she brooded, with feelings curiously compounded, of the delight of an art-lover in a new-found treasure, and of a mother's in her suckling child. But on the fifth day the key suddenly changed, and Sylvia, hurrying over in answer to an agitated note from Jessica, found her pacing in stormy sorrow the gay little room which seems prepared for only happy scenes and faces. Colonel Graham, on his return the day before, had received the news of the engagement as his wife had predicted. 
he had forbidden Paul to set foot in the house, and Jessica to leave it without her mother, lest she should meet or communicate with him. If I could only get a message sent to him in some way, I dare not trust the servants. Give it to me, then, said Sylvia. She had intended to post it, but that was not necessary, for on her homeward way she found Paul waiting to meet her and learn how Jessica was. He received the note with such rapture as satisfied even Sylvia, and met her next day on her road to Beechcroft with an answering letter to Jessica. In this guileless mode was the correspondence conducted for a few days when it came to Colonel Graham's knowledge. His view of the matter was explained to Sylvia by Mrs. Graham, with her usual gentle placidity. You see, the Colonel cannot speak about anything which annoys him without shouting and stamping about the room, which is rather confusing to a stranger. So I thought I had better see you instead, and explain that he is not pleased at your carrying notes between Jessica and Mr. Seymour. And, indeed, my dear, it is not a very wise thing for you to do on your own account, as, if you are seen meeting Mr. Seymour every day and exchanging notes with him, people may talk about it. I don't care the least about that. But I don't think your grandmother would like it, and, to tell you the truth, the Colonel says that unless you promise not to carry any more of these messages, he must ask you not to come here any more. Jessica must decide what I shall do. Oh, promise anything rather than not come here, cried Jessica, bursting into tears when she was appealed to. What should I do without you? Sylvia had then to break to Paul this doleful treaty. His gaze of despair went through her heart like a knife, and left it smarting all that day and half the night as well. The days went on and brought no comfort. Jessica grew paler and more listless, exhausted partly by fretting, partly by continual and angry arguments with her father. "'It wears me out! It wears me out!' she cried once, so that at times I feel I must give way. "'Ah, that would be impossible,' said Sylvia. "'You could not give way without being false to Paul.' "'Dear, dear Paul,' said Jessica, taking up a photograph of her lovers and studying it with an exquisite smile. "'No, I should never be false to him. Ah, how I love him, Sylvia! I have fancied I cared for other men sometimes, but nothing, nothing like what I feel for him.' But there came a time when the sight of his picture was not enough. "'I can bear it no longer,' she cried wildly. "'Not to see him is bad enough, but never to hear from him or be able to send him the slightest message. It is almost as if he were dead. Oh, Sylvia, you must help me.' She paused before her friend, a beautiful image of grief. They were in the rose-coloured dressing-room, and she wore a long white wrapper, which twined about her lithe form, in folds a sculptor might have copied, while round her pale, passionate face, her hair, ruffled by the pillows on which she had been resting her head, floated in a soft, dark haze. "'What can I do, darling Jessica? I have promised not to carry notes between you. But you have only promised papa.' 
who, you must allow, is treating me cruelly. I think his conduct is quite fiendish. But still, dearest Jessica, you know I could not break my word. This was the saddest episode this melancholy idol had yet unfolded. Jessica was disappointed with her friend, and Sylvia felt compelled to behave almost brutally. At last she devised a plan to which Jessica consented, because, as she afterwards said, she did not thoroughly understand it. Sylvia went down to the drawing-room, and candidly explained that she must withdraw her promise, as she now intended to help Paul and Jessica to correspond. "'Dear me!' said Mrs. Graham, who fortunately was the only person present. "'And so I am afraid, Mrs. Graham, that I must not come here any more.' "'No, I am afraid not, my dear. It is a pity. What trouble Jessica is causing by all this nonsense, to be sure. I think it is Colonel Graham who is to blame.' so he is for as i have told him over and over again if he did not oppose jessica and go on arguing with her about mr seymour she would soon be sick of him herself and we should hear no more about the matter sylvia went home and wrote to paul to explain that the correspondence was to be resumed and that he would find jessica's letters and might leave his own in the hollow of a yew-tree to one corner of the beechcroft grounds separated from a lane by a wall low enough to be easily surmounted then her chief occupation being gone she began to discover how the last two or three weeks had exhausted her she felt too tired to practice or to study or even to improvise on her violin in musical daydreams as of old she wandered about the park aimlessly, or sat for hours at the open bay window in the schoolroom, gazing into the sunlit green of a resplendent summer, and thinking of the friend she could no longer serve. But this was not to last long. One morning she received a letter from Paul to say that the fatal hour had sounded. In other words, he had been summoned to Egypt, and must leave in two days. Would Miss Clanover, who had always been so constant and sympathetic a friend, and whose powers of persuasion were so great, entreat Colonel and Mrs. Graham to grant him an interview with Jessica before he started? Accordingly, in such a mood as would have carried her unflinchingly into a lion's den, Sylvia presented herself at Beechcroft before the Colonel, as well as Mrs. Graham, to make this astonishing demand at first only sound and fury followed as the colonel walking up and down the room denounced loudly and in the strongest terms the folly of jessica the insolence of paul and the impertinence of outsiders who ventured to meddle in his domestic affairs sylvia comprehending a signal from mrs graham sat mute and motionless the while at last, when the colonel's fury was partly, and his breath for the moment wholly, spent, Mrs. Graham observed, I cannot see myself any objection to their meeting. Then ensued more raging. 
It can do no harm," continued Mrs. Graham, at the next lull, " as they are not likely to see each other again." Sylvia bit her lip as if in pain, and the Colonel angrily objected that Seymour unfortunately was not going for life, and would be home again in a few years. " But by that time Jessica will be married, or, if not, she will have certainly forgotten all about him." After that the storm gradually subsided, and a very ungracious consent was obtained. "'But I won't have them writing to each other,' roared the Colonel. "'No correspondence, mind!' "'They will correspond, whatever you say, my dear. You cannot prevent it. But it will not be for long, as Jessica, luckily, cannot bear letter-writing.' and now there is to be an end to this confounded folly i suppose miss clanover can come here again said the colonel departing with a sudden softening of the heart toward his old favourite i hope so indeed said his wife my dear i am quite concerned to see you look so ill you take all this a great deal too seriously why in a week or two jessica and mr seymour will have forgotten all about it and be as happy as possible but this kind of consolation was more distasteful to sylvia than the colonel's raging when sylvia drove over to beechcroft next day she found a fly laden with luggage waiting before the hall door and as she alighted from the carriage paul came hurrying out he pressed her hand before he sprang into the fly, but spoke not a word, even of farewell. But for weeks afterward, when she was wakeful or feverish at night, his face as it looked then would rise before her, painted on the darkness, and make her wince again. In the drawing-room she found Jessica lying on the floor, with her head resting on the sofa, crying as sylvia had never heard her cry before with long sobs more piteous than moaning sylvia sitting down on the floor beside her silently drew the beautiful head to her shoulder and there held it close pressed to her cheek as mothers often hold the babe they comfort meanwhile through the open door window she looked into the sunlit garden where the birds were singing and the butterflies flittering and the flowers glowing jewel-wise in the radiant summer day and felt she had passed into the shadow from which nature holds aloof but jessica grew calmer by degrees and began to speak about paul's grief and her own oh our time together was so short he does not sail till to-morrow night but he must spend to-night at thornbury between here and southampton with his uncle the uncle who helped to get him this appointment so he had to hurry off before i had time to say half i wanted to and ah my lock of hair she started up in sudden dismay and drew from her bosom a tiny parcel folded in silver paper i cut it off on purpose for him and now i have forgotten to give it him and he forgot to remind me oh how miserable he will be when he remembers it now he has no keepsake of mine poor darling what time does his train go cried sylvia running to look at the clock perhaps i shall have time to catch him before it starts oh you darling 
You might just catch him, perhaps, if you took the short way to the station across the fields from our back gate. I will show you." They were both in the garden now, running together down the gravel path. " Jessica, have you any money ? If I miss him after all, I could follow him by the next train." " Oh, you little angel ! Would you ? Here is my purse. Straight on, along this path, till you come to the road again. Then to your right, and you will soon see the station. Good bye, you darling little thing. Oh, get it to him somehow !" "He shall have it," Sylvia called over her shoulder. But when she reached the station, Paul's train had started, and the next did not leave for two hours, during which time she underwent that peine forte et dure of which railway stations are too often the scene. She might have profitably spent some minutes in eating, for it was past two and she had had no lunch, but she was too ignorant and too shy to find her way to the refreshment room, having always hitherto journeyed in royal fashion with attendants who did everything for her. A porter took her ticket and found a place for her, and about five she reached Thornbury station. There she learned that Mr. Seymour's place lay nearly six miles from the station, and, at the station-master's suggestion, taking an open wagonette which chanced to be waiting, she drove on thither across a high and bleak down-country. Meantime heavy grey clouds were drawing over the bright sky, and a chill wind from the west blew fitfully. Sylvia, in a cotton gown which had been warm enough when she started, shivered a little as, emerging from a beech avenue, the wagonette drew up before the portico of a big house. To her unspeakable relief, Paul was declared to be within, and presently came out to speak with her. Though at first amazed to see her, he was afterwards so transported with joy at sight of the precious token which she brought him that he could think of nothing else. He was still standing in a kind of ecstasy on the doorsteps as they drove off, and only some minutes later, when the rain was falling heavily, did it occur to him that Sylvia appeared to have neither wrap nor umbrella with her. To Sylvia herself, who would have gone through fire, much less water, on behoof of her friends in their affliction, the rain seemed of little consequence, seeing the main point was now secured. But even her sense of relief could not prevent her feeling chilled to the bone in her dripping garments when she reached the tiny station, where neither food nor fire was to be found. At Seachester she had wits enough left, faint and dizzy though she was, to order a fly, and finally arrived at the Grange, so weary that she could hardly climb the long stairs to her bedroom, or swallow the hot milk which the frightened women-servants entreated her to take. After this she was in bed for three weeks. "'And it was all so unnecessary,' cried Mrs. Graham, when she heard the whole story, for the hare might have gone just as well by post. He would have had it next morning, which would have been quite time enough. It was not a thing he wanted that very night, like his toothbrush or his night-dress. Both she and Jessica visited Sylvia daily, the one lavishing beef-tea and jellies, the other grateful and caressing words. She was better before her grandmother returned, 
and that lady, during her short stay previous to a campaign of country house visits, did not inquire very minutely into the origin of her granddaughter's cold, but departed, adjuring her to be less reckless in the matter of warm clothing and umbrellas. The day of that unlucky journey had been the farewell of summer, after which followed weeks of rain and storm, and Sylvia, still white and weak, was forbidden to go out save on dry days. The dreary time was brightened for her by the twofold pleasure of receiving Paul's letters and transmitting them to Jessica. Jessica, as her eyes grew wet over the first, half offered to let the bearer read it too, but Sylvia recoiled from such a deed as sacrilegious one day late in august when the rain-clouds had parted for a little and the sun was blazing on the wet sward and foliage jessica came over looking less listless and dejected than she had done for many a day she was going away with her parents to pay a round of visits they would not be back for six weeks i am sorry to leave you my darling little sylvia she said as they sat together in the deep window-seat but i am thankful to get away from beechcroft i only wish i was never going to see it again i hate the very sight of the place where i have been so miserable you must give me your address as you go from place to place that i may send you paul's letters will you send me yours to forward still no dear that will be more easily managed when we are away from home papa cannot go poking into the post-bag in other people's houses darling paul sylvia do you know though it is nearly four weeks since he left i feel just as devoted to him as ever i assure you come what may i never never can care for any other man dear jessica could i think so for a moment but oh dear how hopeless it all seems at times said jessica rising and strolling toward the piano there standing she let her fingers drop upon the keys and began playing absently the chords of the duet toward the close she sang very softly for we shall breast the storm of time unshaken and love to-morrow as we love to-day sylvia with her eyes closed and her head thrown back against the window-sill bet her nether lip to keep it from trembling it was not only jessica's voice she heard paul's tender tenor mingled with it and the cry of her own violin she felt the warm air of june upon her face she saw the green garden vista and the scarlet and azure flowers and before all and above all the two young faces alight with the rapture of first love ah me said jessica as she turned from the piano and began to pull on her gloves i sometimes think that paul and i will never sing that song together again oh don't jessica cried sylvia putting out her hand as if to ward off something that never again is such a terrible word i cannot bear it mrs graham also came over to say good-bye to sylvia and to give her excellent advice concerning tonics and milk dear dear how ill you do look this love affair of jessica's has nearly been the death of you i do trust you will forget all about it now as i assure you jessica will directly she has something fresh to think about 
And now the weather became brighter, and Sylvia's small, wan face began to grow a shade less colourless and thin. Presently the wail of the violin was heard again, and her old occupations were resumed. The first glow of the early summer was not to be recovered, but a sober restfulness of spirit had fallen upon her, like the calm of the still September days, now brooding over all the sunlit land. Toward the middle of that month, for the first time since he left, Paul missed a mail. Sylvia was disappointed, and when he missed the second also, much concerned. But the following week she was consoled by a letter. "'Has he been ill?' she inquired when she forwarded it to Jessica. But Jessica, it would seem, was too busy to answer. The short notes in which she sent her various addresses containing beside them only hurried assurances that she had no time to say more. After this came another and a longer gap in Paul's correspondence, and the letter which followed was lighter than any of his others. Then three whole weeks passed without a word from him. To Sylvia's equal comfort and relief, Jessica in her next letter made no comment on this omission. She merely said that her address would be as it had been for two weeks now, Denbury Castle, Ludley, Loamshire, till Thursday next, when they all returned to Beechcroft. In a postscript she besought Sylvia to come over to lunch on Friday. That a letter from Paul might arrive before that day was now Sylvia's constant prayer, and it was granted. On Thursday afternoon, when she came in from a long ramble through the park, she found that the afternoon's post had brought her a letter in the well-known handwriting. But the inner enclosure was not addressed as usual to Jessica. It was for Sylvia herself. She sat down in the old window-seat to read it, with a vague presentiment of coming grief. It was a very long, a needlessly long, letter, such as people are apt to write when they have something unpleasant to confess. The pith of it was contained in this sentence, which followed a rather involved and bewildering preface. You will gather from this that my feelings toward Jessica have undergone some change, and though I shall always entertain for her the highest respect and affection, I cannot honestly say that she still holds the first place in my heart. Of course I shall abide by my promise if she, still, under the circumstances, should wish me to do so. I trust to you, dear Miss Clanover, who have always been such a friend to us both, to explain this to Jessica and let me know her decision." Sylvia put her hand up to her head as if it had been struck. Her brain indeed reeled as if from a blow. Through the window, which she had forgotten to shut, the air came keen and cold for over the darkening elms and their shadow glowed the delicate rose of a sharp frost, and from far away, from some distant world, wrapped in sunlight and warmth, came to her, like a mocking echo, the words and the music, For we shall breast the storm of time unshaken, and love to-morrow as we love to-day. It will kill Jessica, she thought first, then, remembering the assurance of all the story-tellers, no, grief does not kill, she will not die, worse, she will live with a broken heart. But as to telling Jessica, she did not waver, 
holding it even worse to have left her to waste her love and faith on one so unworthy so after a night spent chiefly in imaginary rehearsals of the terrible task before her she drove over to beechcroft by woods and gardens which the frost had seared her knees shook together as she crossed the hall behind the servant who ushered her in should she find jessica alone the answer to this as the drawing-room door opened before her was a burst of chatter and laughter the room was crowded as of old with jessica's merry little court of admirers and companions mrs vane was there too and a man whom sylvia had never seen before short and red-faced all this she perceived in a flash before jessica came hastily across the room to welcome her jessica not more beautiful than before that in sylvia's eyes was impossible but brilliant like a flower that more showers have revived you darling how glad i am to see you little frog you are as cold as if it were winter sylvia hardly heard what she said or mrs graham's kind greeting and as they turned to welcome another visitor she sank into a seat beside mrs vane it had become suddenly clear to her that her errand was even more cruel than she had thought but mrs vane was talking and sylvia at last became aware of what she was saying and long settled out there and very rich so of course all the seymours are very pleased it is a much more suitable engagement than well i am glad they have both been so sensible about it as sylvia wondered what she meant by both jessica came gliding toward her dear little mouse i am pleased you have not forgotten your violin we want to try the duet after lunch i have been singing it a good deal at denbury castle with our host but it never sounds anything without your obligato by and by he is to take you in to luncheon let me introduce sir walter lawley it was the short red-faced man you play the violin a good deal don't you he said as they crossed the hall well i like it very much with the piano rather squeaky by itself don't you know but with something else it has a nice lively effect i should think it would be a great improvement to that duet especially as the tenor part is miles too high for me after that becoming seriously interested in the luncheon which was a remarkably excellent one he said little more and sylvia spoke even less she sat like one in a dream a horrible dream before the sparkling flower-crowned table with happy faces all around her while the china and the silver tinkled and the young people led by jessica greeted each other with jesting words and laughed exuberantly at nothing as is the pleasant way of youth and health colonel graham who was evidently in the best of tempers twice sent the butler to tempt her with champagne to bring back those roses of yours he called nodding kindly to the little white face are you a teetotaler asked sir walter disapprovingly never mind dear said mrs graham who sat at the other side of sir walter jessica has something nice to tell you after lunch such good news that will cheer you up good news the word seemed to wring her heart 
she felt faint even to sickness as she climbed upstairs after jessica who led the way with a step so light it was like dancing to that well-known pink and white dressing-room freshly set out in snow-white laces and crisp new bows but first let me show you my new ulster not yet not yet gasped sylvia taking her friend's hands in hers oh jessica sit down here with me i have something to tell you darling can you be very brave can you bear to hear terrible news to know that the one you most trusted is is sylvia broke down all the more hopelessly because the amazement in the blooming face before her showed her that her words failed to convey any suspicion of what she meant to jessica i cannot tell you she cried thrusting paul's letter into jessica's hands and you would not you could not believe uh, you must read it for yourself then she hid her face in her hands and waited till when at last she felt jessica move and touch her gently on the head she started up and throwing herself on her knees before her outraged friend covered her hands with tears and kisses dear little sylvia don't cry like this mamma is quite right you take things much too seriously there was something not so much in the words as in the tone which made sylvia instantly choke back the tears and look up quickly into jessica's face the beautiful dark eyes undimmed by tears were full of pitying concern you poor little thing you have quite disfigured your dear little face with crying she stretched out her long white hand toward a crystal scent bottle that stood upon a table near her and steeping her filmy handkerchief in its contents began softly bathing sylvia's forehead you see darling i am not altogether surprised at what has happened and not the least offended i cannot blame paul poor fellow for falling in love with somebody else i could not expect him to go on caring only for me when there seemed no chance of our engagement ever coming to anything it was quite hopeless you know papa would never have consented and i could not possibly marry against his wishes i should have had nothing to live upon and besides it would have been quite wrong i consider so i am only too glad paul takes so sensible a view of it all it is quite a relief to me as it makes it much pleasanter for me to tell him what i had come to think about it myself for since i have been away and thought things over calmly i have seen how foolish it was to go on fretting for a thing one couldn't have like a child crying for the moon you know instead of trying to make the best of things and being content with life as one finds it i had quite determined as much for paul's own good as for my own to break off our engagement in fact i have all but promised to marry sir walter lawley indeed i think he considers that i have quite promised and he has ordered the engagement ring i am sure you will like him dear he is not exactly clever but such a darling so sensible and solid just what one likes in a husband you know and and i assure you sylvia here jessica blushed softly and dropped her long lashes with the loveliest smile 
I never could have believed I should care so much for anybody as I do for him. I never " A knock at the door interrupted her. Mrs. Graham had sent up to know if the young ladies could come down and try over the duet before Mrs. Vane left. Jessica went down at once, leaving Sylvia behind to bathe her face and smooth her ruffled locks and while she helped her mother to get out the music and the stand whispered to her sylvia's gratifying tidings well that is a comfort cried mrs graham and now i do hope sylvia will be happy she was a little disappointed when sylvia entered quiet and composed indeed but very pale everybody arranged themselves to listen this is a great treat i have been quite looking forward to cried mrs vane ah now you will hear how it sounds with a real tenor cried colonel graham dear papa said jessica smiling indulgently on him he thinks everything walter does perfection stand here sir and remember to sing well out at the crescendo it's rather soon after lunch said sir walter clearing his throat one two three cried mrs graham in an admonitory tone they began and the well-known harmonies floated through the room the singer stood as before just between sylvia and the door window it had been thrown open to the sunny afternoon and she could see through it a sky as blue as that of june itself but the boughs that crossed it were shrivelled and brown the tropiolum was like cinders and the lobelia like ashes the first verse went very well though the obbligato might have been a trifle louder during the next four lines the violin grew fainter and faltered finally it ceased altogether leaving the voices to sing unsupported save by the piano the words for we shall breast the storm of time unshaken and love to-morrow as we love to-day i beg your pardon said sylvia meekly but i feel rather faint and i think perhaps i had better go home everybody was concerned colonel graham and jessica besought her not to go but mrs graham declared it was the wisest thing to do and now sylvia my dear she said when she had forced her to drink some wine and wrapped a shawl about her we shall expect you to perk up and look well again for you know there is nothing left to grieve about jessica is quite happy and so is mr seymour and everything has ended as comfortably as possible they all came out on the doorsteps to see her go and bid her come back very soon you must get strong and well by the middle of next month were jessica's last words to be my bridesmaid as the curve of the gravel sweep brought the departing carriage opposite the portico again they were still there jessica kissed her hand to sylvia who was leaning forward toward the carriage window to look at them they formed so happy a domestic group jessica her lovely face bright with pleasure standing between her lover and her father no one was missed why should he be since equally forgetful of them he too was happy and contented sylvia could but repeat to herself mrs graham's incontrovertible words there was nothing to grieve for everybody was satisfied all had ended well
End of story two.